Let's pray once more for the preaching of God's word. God, we ask now that in the reading and preaching of your word, Christ would be exalted in our hearts and in our minds. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move in our hearts, give us faith where it's lacking, strengthen us, build us up in the faith, strip away all that is displeasing to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For my family, we are in the mode almost of birthdays, summer birthdays. How many of you have a summer birthday? A lot of you, probably more than half. That's good, because although we love the rest of you, summer birthdays are the best, <laughs> right? All, all four of us in our family have birthdays in June, July, and August. As a child, I remembered opening presents, and I was so eager to get into those presents, to rip off the paper of those presents, and to see what was underneath the paper. And I would unwrap it. I would be so excited about what it was, and then my mother would tell me, say thank you. But there was one problem. I had forgotten to look at the tag on the present. I didn't know who the present was from, and I didn't know who to say thank you to. So from a young age, she, we, we heard this refrain over and over again. Look at the note first. Look at the card. Don't trash it with all the paper. Look at the card first. Because what do we want to do when someone gives us a gift? We want to say thank you. We want them to know how special it was to us, how kind it was of them to give us this gift. Every day of your life, is a response to the God who has given you life and breath and everything. He created you for his glory, and your response should be one of grateful thanksgiving every day of your lives. God is the, the first mover, the first actor, the one who acts before we do. So everything that we do, whether words of praise or actions of kindness, or prayers of thanksgiving. Everything we do is a response back to Him for His gifts to us. Not only of life, but for those who are us who are Christians, for the gift of redemption in Jesus Christ. How could we live any other way except giving thanks back to Him with our words and our deeds? And yet, if you don't know the giver, if you don't know who he is who has given you life, you will not know who to thank. You won't be able to thank anyone. If you don't know who Jesus Christ is, not just in an intellectual sense, but a real relational sense, you will not respond to him appropriately in a way that gives him glory and honor. And this is what we see with the Jews throughout these last several chapters in the book of John. The beginning of John, we are told, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. They should have responded with grateful joy at the coming of Jesus Christ, and yet they rejected him. And as we come to this last section in chapter 8, this is the last section of Jesus' discourse with the Jewish leaders in the Feast of Tabernacles. We've been seeing this over the last few chapters. 
We still, their hearts are still stubborn against God and the one God has sent. Our theme for the text from this text this morning, the theme for the sermon this morning, we'll have to do a little bit of work to get there, but it is Jesus is greater than the greatest of God's people. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Abraham. He's greater than all. And as a result, you, whether you are a Christian or not, you owe him your obedience. You owe him joy in who he is for you. You owe him worship. Jesus is greater than Abraham. So this is the conclusion of Jesus' discourse with the Jews in the Feast of Tabernacles. And they've been arguing back and forth. The Jews keep pounding away at Jesus about his claims to who he is, about his identity, that he is the Son sent from heaven. He keeps challenging them. They call themselves children of Abraham, and yet they do not do what Abraham did. God is there in front of them in the flesh, and they are rejecting him. And now in this passage, they turn away from arguments. They've never really had good arguments anyway, but they turn away from arguments to ad hominem attacks. They, they turn to insulting him. They call him a Samaritan. They say he must have a demon. And yet in the midst of all of this, Jesus defends himself in verses 48 to 51. No, you're not right that I have a demon. I do not have a demon. Actually, what Jesus says, everything I do honors the Father. I honor the Father and you dishonor me. You see, what they're ultimately doing is dishonoring the God they claim to know and love by dishonoring his son. Has anybody ever insulted your child or your family member? In doing so, they dishonor you. These Jewish leaders are dishonoring God Almighty, the one of the, the creator of heaven and earth, the one to whom they should be offering thankful praise and worship. And this, in Jesus' defense of this, he says, No, I honor my Father, but you dishonor me. And yet, he says, It's not me to defend myself ultimately. There is one who seeks meaning there is one who seeks my glory. Isn't it interesting? Here Jesus says the Father is seeking the glory of the Son. There is one who judges, he says. In other words, it's not for them to judge him. Rather, the Father will judge his own behavior. He is honoring the Father. And then he, he turns the, the argument, he turns the, the point of attention away from himself in a sense to what, how they must respond to him in his being. He says, truly, truly, in verse 51, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The reverse of that is true. Listen, if you do not keep Jesus' words, you will see death. He's already told the Jews, you will die in your sins because you have rejected me. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death death. That, that means this word that Jesus is teaching them about who he is, about his identity as the Messiah. T 
to keep, that means to receive it into yourself, to accept it, to believe it by faith, and seek to glorify Him in your grateful response to who He is. The reverse, uh, the, uh, there's another side of this, a positive aspect. Anyone who keeps the word of Jesus not only will not see death, it, the reverse, they will see everything that is truly life. All the beauty, all the goodness, all the joy of that which is truly life, you will receive in receiving Jesus and his word. But then this causes the Jews to seize upon his words of not seeing death. And they, they turn their argument to Jesus' identity, particularly as it rate, relates to Abraham. Who are you compared to Abraham? And the prophets, they died. The greatest people of God. And yet they died. Are you saying that you are greater than Abraham and the prophets? In essence, Jesus says, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> yes, I am greater than Abraham, your father in the faith. Look at what he says. They say, are you greater than Abraham who died? And Jesus says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me. In other words, he's saying again, God the Father is the one glorifying me. I don't have to defend my honor. I don't have to glorify myself of him whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. And here's where we come to our theme in the passage. Jesus says in verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus is greater than Abraham, and here's the first proof that Jesus offers. Jesus is Abraham's object of delight. Jesus is the object of Abraham's joy. Do you see how offensive that would have been to the Jews? This one that they lift up as one who is the greatest of the great among God's people. And he delighted in Jesus. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. And rejoice. Notice he says, your father. He's speaking of your father to the Jewish people as according to the flesh. He's already said they're not the spiritual children of Abraham. Because if they were, they would do what Abraham did. And they're, they're not doing what Abraham did. Rather, they're seeking to kill him. We see that in verse 39. See, this is how the Jews should have responded. They should have rejoiced in the day of Jesus Christ. Their joy should have been in Him, not in their own selfishness, not only in their own desires, not in their own self-righteousness, but in Christ alone. But we might wonder, how did Abraham rejoice in the day of Christ, since there's such this huge gap of time between them? This is what the, the Jews come back with. How could Abraham rejoice in Jesus' day, see it, and be glad in it? I think in order to find that out, we should turn back to the narratives about Abraham. What kind of things did he rejoice in? What kind of things did he, pro did he believe in? And what we find is that he rejoiced in the promises of God to him. 
especially the promises of God concerning his offspring. In Genesis 15, the promises made to Abraham that he would have a son from, your, from within your own loins. Not, it won't be a, a near relative. It won't by, be by anyone else. It will be your offspring. And it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He clung to that promise. He hoped in that promise. He was looking forward to that promise. In Genesis chapter 21, Sarah gives birth to a son. And they call him Isaac, which means laughter. Because they have been given such joy in this one who was promised and this one who was born. But they knew the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises wasn't in Isaac. They knew it would be some other offspring who would come further down the line. They were looking to him. They were looking further down the line to the offspring who will come. In Genesis 22, verse 18, God again makes this promise after Abraham had showed his willingness to obey and sacrifice his son Isaac. And God says to him, you will have an offspring, and in him all the nations will be blessed. We'll turn over into your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, and we see what Abraham and Sarah were looking to. Hebrews chapter 11, first verses 11 through 13. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And then also look at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham and Sarah received the promises of God and yet they knew that they were looking far into the future for this expectant one, this Messiah who would come. And in this way, Abraham and Sarah looked forward into the future with eyes of faith and rejoiced in the day of Jesus Christ. They saw the day of Jesus Christ, their offspring, and it gave them great joy. Spurgeon says it was a far-seeing clear-sighted faith that they had. And that yet Jesus now has come into his day and is standing before the Jews and they hate him. They reject him. We have a, many funny sayings in the English language. One of them is, I can't wait. You've said it probably multiple times this past week. I can't wait. Somebody sends you an email about getting together. Great, I can't wait. You're looking forward to a party or a vacation or retirement or something else. And you, you can't wait. And what I want to say sometimes, I, I use it too, but what I want to say sometimes, 
You can wait, and you will wait. <laughs> but we're speaking figuratively, right? What we mean is we're so excited about this particular event or thing that we wish we didn't have to wait. And what is it for you that you can't wait for? You can't wait to see your children grow up. You can't wait, perhaps, to see your child come to faith in Jesus. Good thing. You can't wait for vacation. I can't wait for vacation. So many things that we are excited about and longing for in this life, and those things are not wrong in and of themselves unless we terminate that joy in that particular thing or event. As an example, our music leader Landon and his fiancée Morgan are getting married in July. Are you excited, Landon? 75 days, he's got the countdown. He's so excited, and it's right and appropriate to be excited about coming together for your marriage, for your wedding. I was so excited. The day before my wedding, I broke out in pimples all over my forehead. I, I never had a problem with that until the day before. This nervous excitement. I was so excited. I can't wait to be married to Rachel. And yet, if Landon and Morgan allow their joy to end in that particular excitement, it will have been wasted. You see, every can't-wait event or thing finds its ultimate satisfaction, joy, fulfillment in the day of Jesus Christ. So, to borrow a, a line from John Piper, we should be excited for these things as though we are not excited because we know they are little tastes little foretastes of this greater, this bigger, this more magnificent can't-wait event when Jesus Christ will return and take us home. What are you waiting for, brothers and sisters? What are you longing for? Martin Luther said that on his calendar are two days, this day and that day. And yet we spend so much of our time focused on tomorrow and the day before that day. How might our lives change if we began looking with eager expectation to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, to that day, the day of Jesus Christ, when we will be with him forever? Abraham rejoiced in the day of Jesus, and it may, may it be so for us as well. Notice also the second proof of Jesus being greater to, than Abraham is that he existed before Abraham, verse 57 and 58. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is speaking about a couple of things here. We'll start with the first one. He's speaking about his pre-existence to Abraham. He was before Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am. And pre-existence in and of itself kind of calls for a certain preeminence. Right? He existed before Abraham, so simply because of that, because he is the pre-existent one, he deserves respect and honor from Abraham. It's a, 
something that's kind of been turned on its head in our culture, actually, is that older people should deserve respect from younger people. It seems like common sense, and yet we flipped it on its head where we don't want to be called old anymore because the young look down on the old as bumbling and they don't know what they're talking about. Really, we should honor those who are older than us. We should honor them. We should lift that up. As growing up, my granddad, and still does it to this day, insists that his children, grandchildren, and now great-grandchildren say a few things. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. I know some of that's culturally bound, but I think that's an appropriate way we can show respect to those who are older. And yet we, we don't want to be called old. I remember speaking with a man who had just turned 100 years old, and I called him old, and he took offense to that. <laughs> I couldn't believe that. <laughs> you can call me old when I turn 100. We should honor those who are older. Jesus pre-existed Abraham. Therefore, if Abraham had met Jesus in the flesh, Abraham would have said, yes, sir, no, sir, to his offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus existed before Abraham, and therefore, Abraham honored him. The Jews should have responded in a similar way. They should have honored him as, as a special guest as a preeminent guest but it's not simply that abraham was before that jesus was before abraham it's that jesus was above and is above abraham that's the second kind of angle to this statement before abraham was i am he doesn't say before abraham was i was he says before abraham was i am and this is the third proof of Jesus' supremacy above Abraham. Jesus is Abraham's God. Not only is Jesus the object of Abraham's joy, not only did Jesus pre-exist Abraham, but Jesus is Abraham's God. This is not simply pre-existence. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And what... You, you may have heard this, you probably know this, that Jesus here is invoking the divine name. When Moses stood before the burning bush and the Lord appeared before him, Moses said, who should I tell the Israelites is sending me? And he said, I am who I am. The same sort of construction. I am. That, that is what we might call Yahweh, the name of of the almighty and sovereign God, and Jesus is claiming this as his identity. Before Abraham was, I am the Lord, the sovereign Lord over heaven and earth. So it's not just if Abraham met Jesus, he would show him honor and respect. I think Abraham actually did meet Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus, when he met the Lord God Almighty. Think about Genesis chapter 14 when Abraham met Melchizedek, this king of righteousness, this king, this uh, mediator between man and God, this type of Christ, this, this person that points forward to Jesus Christ. And what did Abraham do with Melchizedek? He honored him and gave a tenth to him. What you, you do that to God, to the priests of God. He offered it to God. He honored him. 
and gave his money to him, gave of what he had received as though he were the one who had given it to him. And then also, Genesis chapter 18. The scripture says that the Lord appeared before Abraham and there were three men standing by the oaks of Mamre as Abraham was in his tent. This appearance of the Lord before Abraham. And what does Abraham do when he sees the Lord? He bows down and he calls him, my Lord. He actually did meet God and he worshiped him. He called him my Lord. He honored him and respected him. And can you imagine how offensive this would be to these Jewish leaders? They're saying that one of the greatest of the great fathers of the faith, Abraham, owed worship to this man standing before them in the flesh. Imagine if you were to go to a synagogue today and stand up and begin proclaiming this, what Jesus is saying. I'm not saying that's an appropriate thing you should do. What would happen? It would be much the same. They would be very offended, angered. You're saying one of their greatest leaders would bow down and submit to this person, Jesus Christ, this God-man, Jesus Christ. Well, you see the offense in the text. What did they do? They picked up stones to kill him because they knew he had just, according to them, committed blasphemy. He had claimed to be the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. But it wasn't his time yet. He wasn't going to be killed by a mob stoning him. right? He, he knew the Father had a different time for him, and so he slipped out of the temple. His time would come later. It would come in official proceedings, as messed up as they were. It would come under an official uh, a ruling from an official judge and king and ruler, and he would be sentenced to death. He would have the long, slow death of beatings and sufferings, whips on his back. He would suffer the terrible death of crucifixion on a cross. This one who just was proclaimed as our joy, this one who is the preexistent one, this one who is Lord of heaven and earth, submitted himself to dying on the cross for sinners. Friends, this is what you deserved, not what the God of heaven and earth has deserved, not what the Son of God deserved. He perfectly fulfilled the righteousness of God, and yet he died as a substitute for sinners so that if you place your faith in him, you will have life and peace and joy. You will have all of your joy found in Jesus Christ. And it will be better than anything that this world has to offer. And what is our response to such a gift? This is how the Jews should have responded. They should have kept his his word. They should have made Jesus the object of their joy. They should have bowed down and worshipped him. Every day of our lives is a response to this God who revealed himself in the person, life, work of Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would live lives of gratefulness, of thankfulness with our words, with our minds, with our hearts, and with our deeds, and so give him glory and honor. And we do have such an opportunity this morning as we take the Lord's Supper together. This is not mostly a focusing on our own actions, not 
focusing mainly on our own devotions or commitments, but focusing upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his work for us in the gospel. He has saved us. He has saved us by his body, which was broken for us, his blood, which was poured out for us. And this is an event of great joy and thanksgiving for what he has done for us. So as we begin this time together, I want us to consider what the table represents, why we come to the table, and how we should come to the table. With what sort of attitude should we come to the table? The table represents the person and work of Jesus Christ. That he lived the perfect life of righteousness in glory and honor to the Father. The life you should have lived, brothers and sisters, but didn't. And he died the death you should have died for your sins. And yet he died for you, brothers and sisters. We come to the table as a reminder of this work by which we've been saved. As a reminder of Jesus Christ and his life and death and resurrection for us. But not only do we come as a reminder, the scripture speaks in mysterious ways about participating in Christ as we we receive the bread and the cup by faith. Jesus is meeting us in his preached word and in this sacrament right now. We come to receive spiritual nourishment as we receive the elements by faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We come to rejoice because of what he has done for us and what he has made us into. He's made us a people. He's made us citizens of his kingdom. He's made us brothers and sisters in the family of God. He's made us one people in Christ Jesus. And how should we come to the table? We should come with repentance and humility, knowing we are completely unable to save ourselves by good works, by our own repentance or by any other means, only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ for our sins. Only by His grace, through faith, are we saved. We are to come with great gratitude, knowing it is by His sacrifice we have been made right with God. We've been reconciled with God. And we are to come with great joy, rejoicing in Christ Jesus. This is the day of Jesus Christ. Rejoice it in it and be glad. Well, as we think about these things, I want us to have a few moments of silence to reflect upon these things as well as to confess our sins to God. So as the servers come forward, let's bow our heads and confess our sins to him.